Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, broadcasting to you from the Corner Pug in Tony West Hartford, Connecticut. And my name is C.R. Wiley. Uh, I'm known as Chris by my friends. So you're a friend, you could call me Chris. And I'm joined by some, some friends. I've got a couple of guys with me, our, our regular participants, and so I'll just turn it over to, to Glenn. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, and I do a lot of research and writing on worldview. And I'm Thomas Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, adjunct faculty of systematic theology and Christian ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and adjunct professor of philosophy and Christian ethics at University of St. Joseph. Great. And just to make clear who I am, uh, as I noted my name, C.R. Wiley, but I'm, on, I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and I'm an author. I've got uh, a few books, and uh, I've got a new book coming out entitled uh, Piety and the War for the Cosmos. That'll be out in mid-April. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about uh, a, uh, a publication that's known as The Masculinist. And The Masculinist is a, a newsletter that uh, gets uh, sent to uh, people who subscribe to it. But before I jump into that and uh, let uh, Glenn and Tom share with you their initial impressions of The Masculinist, I want you to know that we, uh, as we've gotten this show off the ground, have gotten a lot of positive feedback. We've already got a number of five-star reviews on iTunes, and you can subscribe to the podcast on, I think, about eight or nine different platforms now. And uh, the only complaint we've got, that we've had, is the sound quality. Uh, we're actually in a pub. We've set a microphone in the middle of the table, and we just let it roll. And it's fun uh, because you, you get the real sense of being with us in the booth. But some of the ambience, you know, some of the background noise has distracted some folks. So because of that, we think that it would be a good idea to invest in some equipment that will allow us to kind of tone down the background noise a little bit and sort of amp up the, uh, the voices that, that uh, you know, are, that we wanted people to be able to hear. So uh, we're going to get a Kickstarter campaign off the ground. And that will allow people to, if they would like, contribute to the purchase of this equipment. So you'll be hearing a little more about that. But, what, of course, what's great about Kickstarter campaigns is that, you know, there are rewards for people who give at a certain level and so forth. And just today we were having a lot of fun thinking about ways that we could incentivize the giving process. And we're not going to give it away yet, but we've got some hilarious ones. But uh, that said, there is a way for you to give to the podcast right now on Anchor FM, where this show is uh, initially uh, posted and then distributed. You can, act, you can even now become a giver to the show. So you just go to Anchor FM, the Theology Pugcast, and takes you right to the place where you can, you know, you know, see a little icon that says "click to donate" or "click to." I can't remember how exactly how it's put, but you get the point. Anyway, all that commercial now is over, and let's move on to the fun. So we're looking at a particular issue of the Masculinist today. It's number thirty, and uh, the Masculinist is a, uh, as I noted, a newsletter that's sent out to subscribers. And it's produced by a fellow named Aaron Wren. And I'll talk a little more about Aaron in a minute. But it's, as you can tell by the name, focused on issues that are of interest to men. And it's gotten quite a following because it's uh, been uh, noted by Christianity Today. Rod Dreher over at the American Conservative has cited it at least once, maybe more than that. And as a result, the uh, uh, according to Aaron, the number of people subscribing is really... Uh, you know, sort of gone beyond his expectations. But anyway, I'm going to let uh, uh, Glenn and Tom now just give their impressions of the masculinist and of this particular uh, uh, issue of it, which is dedicated to complementarianism and why it may be dying. So go ahead, guys. Whoever wants to go first. I've uh, read a number of the issues of The Masculinist, and I find them uh, invariably interesting. He's got a lot of... Uh, 
really worthwhile perspective, I think, to bring to a lot of issues uh, surrounding men particularly, but more broadly gender and related issues. Uh, this one, however, when I read it, left me a little bit confused, and we'll talk more about this later, I suppose, but his, his definition of complementarianism uh, wasn't as clear as I would like it to be. I mean, I know what the word means, and I've got an idea of what the movement is about or what the theological ideas are in it, but uh, he seemed to be using it a bit differently, and I would have liked a bit of a clearer definition of what he was talking about. Um, this is uh, my first uh, article uh, read on the masculinist, and um, uh, similarly, I think some of the terminology is used idiosyncratically, or at least um, in, in ways that, that may be uh, a little different than people who work with this terminology all the time. Um, but I think I was able to, to kind of pick out um, s some of what was specifically meant by, by especially the term complementarianism. And I think it was an, it was an interesting um, clarification that he made um, of t speaking about a specific conception of it that is tied to um, cer a certain point in modernity that sort of adopted a lot of the background picture that modernity offers as sort of the setting in which Christians tried to spell out um, the, the complementarian vision. And because there have been shifts in worldview emphasis from a modernist to maybe a postmodernist or, or different, different shades of, of modernism, therefore there is a dying off or a, um, a weakening of that particular articulation of it. So I think that's what he was sort of after with with that. Um, but yeah, I would like to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit clearer on that. But I think a couple just impressions uh, that I picked up along the way as, as well. Um, I, th I think it was very interesting to focus on kind of the relation of this to a particular um, group of people, especially baby boomers. And a lot of times, I think maybe sort of sociologists kind of look at this stuff, and theologians kind of depend on sociology yeah, to look at it, but to, to tie a particular theological um, uh, attempt at a, at a theological position tied to a particular group yeah, is, I no, think, fascinating. Uh, and I think that's a really good observation because uh, Aaron actually is an economist, so he thinks in this this way all the time. I'll say a little more about Aaron in a minute, but, but yeah. you're on the right track. Right. And uh, so I think that was very interesting. I think it's, and it's a part of the puzzle that I think needs to be brought in. And I think the other strand that I really um, I think I got a lot out of just kind of as an impression is that there is some shifts happening in society and you are seeing you are seeing the effects of that and he starts to drive home well what's going to happen next to those who are concerned about sort of the biblical understanding of the relationship between uh, men and women their natures their true ends and how the church is going to live that out if it doesn't embrace the egalitarian vision right. yeah. and that actually is you know part of the problem that I had with it was, you know, when he says that complementarianism is a product of the early baby boomers, that struck me as absurd because it hit home. Because <laughs> you're an early baby. No, you're not. I'm, early. Not. I'm a late you're, baby boom. You're a mid baby boom. Oh, well, okay, yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, I'm in the X zone. So. Um, but but the idea that complementarianism, which I take it as referring to the idea that men and women are different and have different roles, but are equal before God. The idea that that was invented by baby boomers is absurd because it goes all the way back throughout church history. It's a 2,000-year-old idea. But what was there's a very specific way he's using yeah, the word yeah, that I would have I mean he does explain it but he doesn't explain it as quite as clearly as I, I would have liked that's really my main criticism of the article yeah I, I think you're right I mean I, I think that it, 
I was able to know where he was coming from because I know him. You know, Aaron and I have had lunch. Uh, when I was down in New York uh, a few months back for the Erasmus lecture at First Things, uh, while I was there, Aaron and I had lunch one day, and we spent like two and a half hours at, at this restaurant next to his, his work. He works for a, a prominent think tank, and it, what he does with the masculinist is sort of a sideline. So I'm not going to mention the think tank or anything like that, but you've probably heard of it. <laughs> but but he's he's uh, he, he's he's made a name for himself in the world of, the, of urban policy, economics, stuff like that. But he had this uh, this frustration. He's a believer, obviously. He's a Christian. He's reformed in outlook, um, and. He was frustrated by all the bad advice he was getting from pastors about, because he was single, you know, and he wanted some guidance, you know, how do I, you know, you know, date girls and <laughs> that kind of stuff. And all the advice that he was getting from these, you know, sort of top shelf, cool table pastors was just worthless, wasn't actually working. And so uh, what he discovered was, you know, the manosphere, if you guys are familiar with sort of that sort of part of the internet or the dark web, you know, people like Jordan Peterson and stuff like that, that's a place where guys who are sort of masculine and sort of, a, you, know, un, you know, sort of self-understanding outlook and so forth go because it's almost like they can't get, you know, you know so like I'm a child of the 70s, you know, the world I grew up in was Shaft's Big Score and Dirty Harry. <laughs> that was my childhood. <laughs> You know, there was we watched the reruns. <laughs> <laughs> so, like when I was a kid, I was like, there was all this stuff around me that said, you know, men are okay and they do good things. You know, yeah, sometimes they kill everybody in the room, but <laughs> but, but that was a good thing. But now you, know, you just can't get that anywhere. You know, so so where do guys go who are not into the touchy feely, soft, you know, rainbow? bunnies, butterfly stuff, you know, where do they go? There's nowhere to go. I mean, even things that, you know, in the past you would have gone to, like comic books and science fiction and all this stuff, all that stuff's been invaded by the feminists. It's been it's been infiltrated and, and sort of poisoned from the perspective of a lot of traditional masculine guys. So where do they go? They go to these places on the dark web. And so some of these people have enormous followings, as we know Jordan Peterson does. But anyway, so what happened was is Aaron was getting more help from those guys than he was from his cool table megachurch pastor people that he was told he should be looking to for guidance. So he thought, you know, there's something wrong here. And so he started to do some research, tried to think things through, and, and the, the things he... The sort of the truths that he arrived at, he adopted, and before he knew it, he was married. <laughs> he got the girl. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, then he realized, hey, you know, there needs to be somebody in the Christian world that's at least telling the truth about some of this stuff. Uh, not just trying to make the church ladies happy all the time, you know, that kind of thing. So he started the masculinist. And initially, if you go back and you look at like the the early editions of the masculinist, a lot of it has a lot of the stuff has to do with, you know, you know, sort of taking a different approach to things, sort of dealing with reality, not with fantasy, and uh, it's like uh, you know. Uh, hypergamy or hypergamy or whatever you know where you know the women still are looking for certain things in guys even though the ideology that's sort of current says they're not and the guys who are able to kind of sort of like live at two levels talk like an egalitarian but live like like Clint Eastwood they're the guys who get the girl <laughs> so so anyway uh, so that's how it started and but now Aaron is concerned about sort of the trajectory of sort of the conservative wing of evangelicalism. He thinks that it's softening. He thinks that it's trending egalitarian. And I think that's really what this is about. When he talks about complementarianism, he's not so much uh, saying, you know, as you said, Glenn, even though I, get, I agree with you, that's the kind of the impression you get, that this was just the product of, a, of, a, of, a, of an early Bamer boomer theology. What he, I think what he's getting at is that these were people who knew a world that they liked and, and they believed it was biblical, but they knew things were changing. They were trying to preserve certain things about it. It was yeah. sort of like a halfway house to egalitarianism. And, and in that preservation, I think is his point, they were actually disconnecting from the historic understanding, the historic orthodoxy and right. biblical orthodoxy, and they were importing a worldview 
that was more agreeable to egalitarianism in its in its assumptions, it forms a relation, patterns of thinking and, and being. Yeah. And so I think that's I think that's what he's after. But but you know, as a historian or even a person who works with ideas, yeah, we're like okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Term, terminologically. Yeah, there's a problem here. I yeah, agree, yeah, I agree. yeah, yeah. He he does make it really clear that he sees complementarianism as a reactionary movement. Yes. He says that very explicitly. Yeah. Um, it and one thing again, knowing a little more about where he was going with this, uh, he. You know, I think we talked about this in one of the previous episodes, but everything's got to begin with metaphysics. Everything begins with what you believe is real. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of these complementarian guys, although they were Orthodox Christians, they fundamentally adopted essentially a secularist mentality about metaphysics, about the nature of reality, which is inadequate to support the kind of complementarian position right. that they were, were arguing yes. for, which is why it turns into a halfway house toward egalitarianism. Right. And I think that is his point. Yeah. That, that's his point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So maybe maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about egalitarianism, why it's just such a miserable thing. Um, now, obviously, we live in a society... You're going to get letters about that, you know that, don't you? <laughs> I already get hate mail from around the world, so... So we're inviting it tonight. <laughs> but you can donate if you want to really get us. You can join our Kickstarter campaign. Because one of the things we're going to do is invite our people. No. <laughs> invite our critics on the show. But, the, uh, but you know, uh, with egalitarianism, uh, what you have is a full capitulation to the metaphysics of modernity and to the market, I would say, because what you have is a, is a, is a world that has emerged that has stripped away, denuded, denatured men and women so that they can be made interchangeable in the market. It works great for corporations. So you don't have to think about, okay, we need to make sure we pay this guy enough so they can support wife and children. No, we just let market forces take over. We just let market forces take over, and, and women are in the market, and, and, and they're you know, competing at the same level as men. And the household is completely in the private sphere or in another sphere, and we don't need to worry about it. Right. And what most people miss is, all right, let's let's assume, you know, sort of the traditional old model of patriarchy, where the man works and the woman stays home and takes care of the kids and all that sort of thing. Then suddenly you say, oh, no, women need to be in the market, too. They should be out working. What you've effectively done is double the workforce. What does that do to salaries? Down. You know, when I was a kid, blue-collar workers yep. owned their own home, like a single, single income. They would own their own home, yep. and frequently they had a boat or a vacation home or something yep. like that as yep. well. Yep. You can barely do that, or actually you can't do that anymore with two incomes for right. most people. Right. That is the effect of doubling the workforce. Right. Yeah. You flood the market with supply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously women, many women are very bright very capable, and what you end up having <coughs> is a situation where, you know, it's like a bonanza for corporations. You know, they've got this supply of very capable people. So egalitarianism accommodates that, even encourages that. The, the, thing that, the things that we've just brought up, it never comes on the radar for many of these, you know, advocates of egalitarianism. They, they more or less take for granted that the household's supposed to be just a place you go to at the end of the day when you've done the important stuff. If you worked you, all day. That's right, after you've worked all day. Both you, of you. That's right, <laughs> and you just collapse exhausted. You know, they have no understanding of the way households worked before the Industrial Revolution, and this is one of the reasons why. There's all this just insanity concerning the New Testament household codes. If you go back and read Xenophon, if you go back and you actually look at, just take a look at the work of Alan C. Carlson, a good friend of mine, and all the research that he's done to, to, that demonstrates the household was a going concern, a small business, and women were, were in the workforce before the Industrial Revolution. Yep, it was absolutely. only the Industrial Revolution that, that created the, the concept of a workplace outside the home. Right, and it's only with the Industrial Revolution that the family ceases to be an economic unit where husband and wife could each go in a different direction. That's right, and interestingly, 
children as well were very active yeah, in right. the, the economy of the, the historic household. Right. And connected to that were, was an understanding of, of, of roles and definitions that helped us orient our identities in a way that we didn't bear the burden of making our identities through a choice. Yes. Because there is actually an order to our household which mimics in exactly and in a fallen way, yet still aims towards a ordered cosmos. That's right. And the women you know, had women's work, and it was that was not a, a derogatory, you know, label. It was a dignified and good thing that we needed. Men needed women to do the women's work, and the women's work was collaborative and it was often communal. There was women who came to got together and worked together and enjoyed one another's company, so they weren't alone, you know, in the kitchen in some suburban house. And you, you didn't know, run the risk of typically of Harvey Weinstein, for example. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Creepy dudes. <laughs> One of the strange byproducts of egalitarianism. You know? That's right. Children worked with the family, which is why when the Industrial Revolution occurred, you get child labor and all the horrors associated with that. Yeah, and now Next. we read back anachronistically into the pre-modern household the abuses of right. children. Right. So because we, we have these pictures of these poor little waifs, you know, beside these monstrous looming machines, right. we think, oh man, it was we, we now in the late nineteenth century with the children's, you know, you know, making child labor illegal. And then when you tell people, well back in the old days, you know, kids were working milk and cows and it was a good thing. They're just they read that or they hear that through the, the sort of the filter of the Industrial Revolution and the horrors of the factories. Right. So that, all that stuff is nuts. But egalitarianism is nuts. <laughs> but I was actually converted in a church that was very explicitly egalitarian. I won't mention the name of the denomination. So this, I don't want to pick this on week. Them. That's right. <laughs> I don't want to pick on them because there are lots of marvelous people in that denomination and in other denominations like it. Uh, but they are more or less. Uh, modernistic in their outlook and individualistic in their outlook. They have, a, they have almost no conception of covenantal theology or metaphysics or anything like that. And it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus for these people. They have no sense in how their connection to the church matters, how their connection to households matter. They have no sense of you know, what it means when Christ talks about the groom and the bridegroom and the kingdom of God. They have nothing... They, to, to them... A marriage and a household is a place where you go at the end of the day, as I mentioned before, to relax. It's favorite functional completely without yeah. any, without being a transcendental point of meaning right. and orientation. Now, for yeah. me, yeah. the cure yeah. was sort of like you know, you know, you ever see those shows, Scared Straight? <laughs> you know, like when you're in a prison, you know, go in the prison, you know, and they, yeah. or, you know, they take these kids who are street kids, you know, and they take them in the prison, and they, all the all the convicts just scare the wits out. <laughs> I went to Harvard Divinity School. I saw where egalitarianism leads. I saw it right there, baby. And it was a horrifying thing. And I, I, I saw it. You need to explain why, because I suspect a lot of our listeners don't understand yeah. that. Right. Well, it's sort of like the leading edge or the, the, the point, you know, of the, of the sort of, if you want to see where sort of things are going to be in, a, in maybe 20 years, just go to Harvard Divinity School. So I saw transgenderism there. This was back in the 90s. Yeah. I saw it all coming, and I saw that egalitarianism, egalitarian theology, was the wedge that would lead to the normalization of homosexuality, but a whole lot more. These were people who were already okay with all of the, the, the stuff that we're seeing all over the place today, transgenderism, even transspeciesism. They had no sense of the normative character of creation. Yeah, none of it. And, and, and it's interesting. There's a few theological points that 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 are, are very big with with egalitarianism. And sometimes, again, this may be an issue that a lot of people unfamiliar with the terminology or or what's going on um, may not under you know may not have an antenna for because they they haven't been able to really look into the background of these things. Um, a couple things uh, going on there. Um, it, one of the things that is is going on is there is something of an embrace of the of the modernity yeah. and the modern enlightenment project in some of its ideals that have been embraced 
and so this is something you know historically known as a, a sort of a variant of, of like in Protestant cases Protestant liberalism where the the spirit of the age is equated almost with the spirit of the ages yeah. and so what happens kind of like thing yeah and so what ends up happening is creation and the metaphysics of creation, which we talked about last week, gets looked at as sort of the status quo and sort of systems of sin solidified. Right. And so if they have a theology um, that is, is challenging that, it's usually done under the term of eschatology. So they eschat- love, they love, they love Galatians. That's right, because eschatology <laughs> is meant to be, you know, this outpouring of the spirit and where there yeah. is neither male nor female, right, right. where there is not. And so this becomes, um, this becomes for them this kind of the normative character of, of what the church should be, start becoming to look like and be realized more and more. And that text is very big. It's, it's big with, with changing. The That's the only part of Paul they like. Everything else can go away. That's right. <laughs> Other than that, he was just a misogynist. Right. And, uh, I, I, I heard these people talk, they were just unbelievable. Father Robert Sirico at the Acton Institute. Um, other people use this phrase, but I got it from him. He talks about imminentizing the eschaton, right? <laughs> yeah. Which, which right. translates to trying to make the eschatological realities of the new heaven and new earth present in this world now. Yes. Right. Well, and I even heard recently, and this is one of my background uh, schools, uh, but a, uh, one of the, I think, a, you know, a prominent smart person uh, finishing the Duke uh, Divinity School program came out and was applying sort of this and it's more radical than social justice theory and basically saying because Jesus Christ himself is male he himself was guilty of part of the participation in the systemic injustice of patriarchy baby so apparently apparently Jesus is Jesus is a, a sinner and so I'm sure the the replacement needs to be. That's right. We need a we need a female Jesus. That's that's right. With a, with well, mother Anne, and mother Anne and the Shaker. She she she. Here I am. <laughs> well, you'd have to get an intersectional one. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other podcast. Yes. Anyway, so getting back to the theme of of egalitarianism, it guts the Christian faith. Uh, of its orthopraxy. But it does so because it's already gutted the Christian faith of its orthodoxy. Yeah. I mean, that's what we have to say to our, our friends. And there are a lot of great people out there on the other side of the aisle, as they say. I've got friends who believe a lot of nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that, that we just have to get very clear is that egalitarianism uh, leads inevitably, inevitably, to all this other nonsense. And that's one of the things that Aaron brings out in this in this edition of the Masculines. Right. right. Just, just to clarify, uh, a, a key element of this is that there is, un- underlying the Christian faith, is a kind of metaphysical view of reality. Right. And... Part of the metaphysical view of reality, part of the givenness of this world, is the reality of male and female. And, and it's a good and, and it's a good thing. thing. God, God, said, God said it's very good. good. You know, and the, the the thing that's really curious about our world is that throughout human history there has not been a single culture that did not have gender distinctions. And yet, in our world, we are trying to, you know, we think we are smart enough to overcome 10,000 years or more of universal human experience because our theory says that men and women are interchangeable. That strikes me as being really unwise in the extreme. But on top of that, it also violates the order of creation that God put in place. And if that goes, everything else yeah, goes like dominoes. Yeah, it's a domino. That's right. And we know a lot of smart people. Mm-hmm. We really do. I've got a lot of people that I know. You've got a lot of people. you got a lot of people. They're very, very smart. And they buy into this stuff. Think about this. Think about this. I know these people on a personal level. Many times their lives are a mess. Yeah. They are a mess. And a lot of times they, you know, once I, you know, I know from my own experience in, in the world of academia, <laughs> is it's pressure. Yeah. Because this is, the, you're, you are, if you hold any kind of conflicting view to the 
you know, yep. to the reigning orthodoxy that's of, right, that's right, that's of right. the, you know, the, there, the, there is heresy in this world today. And, and uh, yeah, then and you're, you're looked at. So what tends to happen for people in those environments who still want to have a voice and bring an evangelical voice right. is there are places at which where can I slim things down? Yes. Where can, yes. Where can I compromise? Right. Because it's not an essential. I'm, you know, we're all agreed now on the Trinity, for example. You've seen this move back. <laughs> but, you know, we're not saying father, mother, God, like they were just going on in uh, the yeah, Presbyterian yeah. Church at right. PCUSA a while back. But so, but but there's been that that pressure on that end. But but I think that yeah, you have this you have this notion going on that egalitarianism represents liberation. Right. And so, and so, and what has happened more and more recently, especially in theological circles, is liberation theology has sort of started to make inroads into into the, especially linking up with sort of feminist ideology, critical race theory. Yeah. And, 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 and we're not just talking about Harvard and Duke. No, we're, we're talking about Gordon Conwell. That's we're right. talking about Fuller Seminary. We're talking about yeah. Wheaton. Let's name some names. Yes. So, yes. so. Just so folks know, you know, people who are sort of out there listening to our podcast, they, they, they can sort of like, when they hear those names, there's sort of like a glow. We know these people on a personal basis, yeah. you know. Let me, let me, let me, be, they're human beings. <laughs> they're subject to, to uh, temptation and frail, they're frail, they're imperfect. And there are things that I'm concerned about, trends. I smell things in the air that remind me of my days at Harvard Divinity School. Yeah. Yeah. The, the point that Aaron Wren makes that I think is really good here is that egalitarianism. Um, it, it, okay, fine. Male and female, they're equals. All right, let, let, let's give that, give them that. But now the culture is saying that there are 56 genders. Yes. What do you do with that? Um, what do you do with tra- transgender? What do you do with um, transhumanism? What do you do with any of these things? The question is, where does one draw the line? We have already said that the distinction that exists within nature of male and female in the givenness of creation, we've already said that that's irrelevant. So what, where can we draw a line? If male and female do not matter at all, then does transgender matter? Do any of the other 56 genders matter? Do and do transspeciesism matter or transhumanism or trans whateverism? Hey, getting back to the people we know, I've got personal friends who used to be evangelical who have come completely into that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they're just unrecognizable to me. To me. They're so, they're, they've been so <laughs> transmuted. <laughs> By Starting sort to of, look like the yeah, idol they, that they, <laughs> they are. Yeah. I remember when. Yeah. Kind of things. Yeah. So, but I think that's. I think that's. I agree with you, Glenn. I think that's Aaron's really salient point here: is egalitarianism is no haven. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's yeah. already passe. In, in uh, yeah, it's, a, it's another thing. I think that was a pretty profound point with this. Is is that very point? is centering on the fact that it's going to become the stale conservative <laughs> viewpoint to which this new shift through postmodern and you know right. the, the shifts that you know emerging worldviews right. sees as oppressive that's right and so and, and then you know, two steps well, down you the saw road with Mar- Martina Navratilova mm-hmm. you know she just recently came out against transgenders playing in tennis I saw this article yes yeah. and she's a lesbian yeah and now she's like She's now part of the patriarchy. She is. She she said, I thought at first it may be just my bias, but she went and researched it and come back, and she understands what happens because all of the mileage that she found in terms of her with women's sports and, and bringing it to a certain level of competition and the the significance of that is completely now undermined. Yes. Because as soon as, you know, Marty Navratilova... <laughs> 
can can get out on the court and, and claim to, to compete within in, within the, the with the within yeah and the, the Olympics have said that's fine. Well, you know what happens. You know, Plato is as well as famous for saying, you know, what is honored in a country is cultivated there. Yeah. So what's going to happen is, you know, you see, okay, I can get a gold medal. I might come in tenth in the men's, but I can win the women's. My time's better than theirs. I think I'll just do this transgender thing. Yeah. We already know guys are doing that. Well, interesting story. In, in my past, my, my sister's a competitive tennis player, and she used to, uh, in women's tennis, uh, she was she was top seed in the region. Well, one year, I remember in Petersburg, Virginia, there was a, uh, a person who had a, a name that the people doing probably didn't know if it was a male's name or female, and they put him in the female category. Well, he won with domination. Right. Nobody mentioned a word because they didn't want to yes. say, oh, we accidentally misunderstood. Yeah. But it was clear as day, the competition level is where my sister, who was top seed, had to give way because of somebody whose yeah. build was different and stronger by nature. That's right. Um, and, 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 that, and, what, and what we're getting at here is, 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 and this is what's been lost with the loss of the, the old metaphysic. With the old metaphysic, it was understood to whom much is given, much is required. So if I find that I'm stronger than my wife, my responsibility is to protect her. She's vulnerable. Um, yeah, maybe there's some woman in the world who's stronger than me, but in our house, I'm the strongest one, and I have certain responsibilities that I need to perform. That's lost. Yeah. You can no longer, and you know, this good brings us back to another thing that bugs me: the fact value distinction. That's another podcast. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's any fact value distinction. Yeah. That's a modernist way yeah. of sort of sort of understanding and interpreting the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fundamental to the way most of us think. Yes. Yeah. You have to get over it. We're, we're raised. In it. This kind of makes a nice point of uh, a nice nice segue to sort of the next stage of our discussion. What. What Aaron is saying is that uh, complementarianism is in trouble. That really, that's what he's getting at. It's not as though he's against gender roles or anything. He's just saying that we've, we've sort of made an argument for them on a weak foundation or a faulty foundation. He identifies the, the sort of the early baby boomers as, as the people who, who proffered this approach. And I think he makes a good case because he's sort of operating in the area of his expertise as an economist. He thinks about social science and as a social scientist. So, um, this generation is dying off. They were the, the people who could remember grandma and grandpa, great grandma and grandpa, and the way they lived their lives before the Industrial Revolution. They still had living memory of the old way of life. And big families to go with it. Right. And they were trying to preserve what the Bible was saying, but also a sort of sentiment that was bound up with that. Yeah, yeah. So, young people today don't have any of that. That's right. All the stuff they get from television and on the internet undermines it. And so, what Aaron, I think, is saying is, is that complementarianism as a movement, sort of the council of biblical manhood and womanhood, is in trouble. Now, I think he's right. And as evidence for why he's right, let me just, you know, give you Exhibit A. Mrs. Amy Bird. Uh, she's a, uh, you know, a, uh, one of the people who participated in the uh, Mortification of Spin podcast. It's uh, sponsored by the Association of Confessing Evangelicals. I, I think it's a reliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Yeah, I don't listen to it very much. <laughs> I think it's a lie. <laughs> but anyways, she tweeted something recently that, that, that was celebrated by many people in the Reformed world to the chagrin and alarm of other people in the Reformed world that she had just signed a deal with Zondervan, which was basically uh, kind of a requiem to the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's sort of like you know, the, the new future. So what, what I think she may be driving at, based on what I know about her, and I don't know a whole lot, I could have this wrong, but, but what it seems is that, that she's uh, intimating is that there's kind of a new sort of, there's sort of a new world emerging in the reform world that's sort of post-complementarianism. Now, whether or not she would, would embrace egalitarianism, I don't know. Maybe she's going to, you know, offer an even sort of another sort of halfway house to egalitarianism. 
but anyway, but I think so. I think that's what Aaron's getting at. And I also think that he's he's calling us to something more fundamental, more radical. We need to get back to creation. Yeah. Yeah. He he did talk about this, and I didn't catch when I read it. I, I didn't catch that this was really the critical point. What he talks about is a kind of complementarianism that basically says that men and women are interchangeable everywhere except in the church and in the home. So you need to have male pastors and husbands as head of the household, but other than that, you know, there's really no difference. And that's an unstable position. And I think he's correct about that. And again, the problem is that he doesn't tie it into the order of creation or anything else, or the complementarian position hasn't done that much. And he, interesting, has a, a subtle point that goes with that, is he talks about what happens when we, it's similar to Lewis, C.S. Lewis's point about uh, remo- removing the organ but demanding the function. Yes. So, especially in, in you know, complementarianism, where we're demanding these functions of leadership and we're demanding a certain uh, notion of, of, of male headship and yet because of everything else around it, the setting, which is actually driving the, the whole picture, um, it's not really allowed to exercise proper, godly, pious um, Christian leadership. Um, and so because of that, and, and he has, it makes an interesting point, he talks about classically the way distance worked. Because I, you know, I remember, I have enough memory of this in, in, in previous generations, there's a certain kind of distance um, related to, to the households. To so men, in other words, from the, with from men, the house. Right. Yes, that, that you know, the, the kind of touchy-feely culture does, you know, it's, it doesn't embrace. Um, and, but he was talking about the sort of the significance of that is because part of that was tied to the leadership and the respect part that are, are necessary to, to carry out that function. It's not authoritarianism. It's, it's about the kind of um, dignity of character and virtue um, that, that guides in a way that doesn't call into question those attributes that allow it to genuinely carry out its role. Let, let's just think about how this works in, in sort of actual institutions that do productive things, like the yeah. military or something. Yeah. Wasn't it known as fraternizing or fraternizing? Yeah. With the list of men, wasn't that uh, discouraged and frowned on in the military at one time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason is, is because you don't want to play favorites. Also. You don't want to play favorites when it comes time to charge the hill or whatever, you know. Uh, that would undermine esprit de corps, and it would probably be, a, a, you know, just a horrible thing in terms of, uh, you know, what, you, what you're able to accomplish. You, know, you need to have some distance so that you can make, uh, you know, rational and uh, correct judgments and not play favorites. So judges do this. Think about it. Think about tenure. Something, something that's really important in academia. What's it all for? Well, tenure is established so that so that professors don't have to fear for their livelihoods by saying something that's unpopular. <laughs> it's understood that you need to have some distance. Yeah. You know, set between your livelihood and your your profession, professing, saying things. Otherwise you're going to feel some pressure mm-hmm. to conform to prevailing opinion. So, uh, in a household, historically, there needed to be a little bit of distance between the father and the rest of the household so that he could exercise his office, pronounce judgments, and do things that were not necessarily enjoyable. <laughs> you know what I'm so, you know, the old, wait till your father gets home. Well, the reason why mom said that wasn't yeah. just because dad was bigger. <laughs> the reason why mom said that is dad had less emotional sort of, uh, you know, less emotionally to lose by punishing children. And children knew that. I don't have no leverage with dad. <laughs> you know, with my mom, I remember when I, when I realized that my mom couldn't hurt me anymore. She, she tried to slap me. I ducked. She hit the wall, and she ran from the room crying. And, I, and then my father got home. 
But in, in interesting, you're, you're right, interesting. And I, I guess different right. families, different experiences. My, my dad tells a very similar story. You wait till your father comes up. Of course, the whole time you're trying to ignore that that's going to happen. Anything. But I remember my dad years later saying it was what goes on from his perspective. He says, I haven't seen my kids all day and yeah, they're coming to yeah. run at me. So in a strange way, it isn't about, oh, dad's so detached that he he's going to come in with a hammer. No, it actually evoked that proper balancing yes. that one needed. So here is, the, here is someone removed from that, so they look at it in a different kind of justice. Yeah, The, yeah. the smiling kid that you have to discipline. You or, know? Or, or you yeah. come home, and I, I did this, you, know, you come home <laughs> and the wife says, you need to deal with so and so, and you're like, I just had a whole day of dealing with stuff. <laughs> I'd like, I was hoping to come home and just have dinner and spend some time with the kids. <laughs> now I have to deal with this problem. So half the time, dad's not actually mad at the kid, he's just mad that he has to deal with the situation. That's right. <laughs> but now everyone comes home and they're all too tired to do anything. Yeah, that's the right, kid, that's kids right. says, All right, yeah, yeah, the kid just goes into the bedroom and gets on the internet. <laughs> But, but so here's here's the question that I'd like for us to sort of wrap up with. Do you think Aaron's right? Do you think that this sort of thin complementarianism, which is sort of a thin biblicism, which says, okay, the Bible does say this and this, we have to obey even though we don't understand why. Do you think those days are numbered in certain places like the, you know, the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, or the Southern Baptist Convention? I think he's right in that it's in an unstable position. Um, you know, you if you do not have the underlying support, if the, the intellectual foundations for this aren't in place, if they are arbitrary rules, they will not stand. And that, that goes across the board. It's one of the big failures in the church in teaching about sexual ethics. Uh, we treat it as a series of do's and don'ts without ever actually dealing with the underlying foundations for why those do's and don'ts are there. And if you don't have the foundation, you can preach the do's and don'ts all you want, but it's going to collapse. And the same thing, I think, I, th I think he's onto something there. I think the same thing is true with um, the complementarian position as it has been presented. And I think there, that there is a proper complementarian position, but it doesn't take the shape of this one because this one is already bought into, without even realizing it, a lot of the premises of modernity. And yeah, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of profound points, and it probably would be a topic to continually revisit. Um, I think one of the the things that I've been reflecting on about it has to do with the way in which the Christian vision has riches and profundity when it is carried through and lived out, um, because it is bound up with what it truly means to be a creature and a family and in relation to the order creations, but also its role in our redemption and restoration and culmination. And the family isn't sort of, all of a sudden we become Christians and all of a sudden the created order is just uh, eliminated. Um, it's fulfilled and it's brought to its fulfillment and then it is brought up into its unity with, with God eternally. And, and so these things are about true liberation and true redemption, not the pseudo-redemption that ideologies try to replace. Um, like, for example, liberation theology tries to replace redemption with societal liberation. Right. There is a relationship, I get that. But the point, the chief end of humanity is not to create the, the, the ideal utopian human society through merely human means. It's a whole different theology going on there. And so, and I also want to say, you know, there is this one side I do think that that um, they they are trying to address abuses, sure, and they you know exacerbate and create a caricature than than which we often have to respond to. So all of a sudden we sound like, oh, you're against egalitarianism, or you're um, so therefore you're for this Beating kind your of wife. this. That's right. <laughs> Rather than we're talking about something that's tied up with sanctification, liberation, and we're talking about something that is is. True, the true freedom 
that the gospel it gives us is an alternative to to attempts at autonomy right. or attempts at um, having to lust for power in order to control the world from our own finite you know wants. And so I, and I think I think what we need to do is yes pull off of our uh, our riches of, of the Christian understanding of creation and redemption and actually um, provide the beautiful alternative which has its culmination in Christ and the church being the bride. Right, and I think that that's, that's critical. It's touched on in the article here and there about um, arguments about words, but fundamentally, um, the analogy of Christ and the church is really critical. Paul yes. makes that analogy. That's right. And his point is, where, where he takes that is, where husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. And that's something that is properly emphasized. But the other part of it is, what else is Christ for the church? You know, he is its Lord. He is its master. He is its teacher. He is its mentor. He is its protector. He is all of these things. And the household, you know, Paul uses Christ in the church to as an analogy for the household, but that means that the household needs to mirror the relationship of Christ in the church. So all of those things are proper to the husband's role. And, and that's a terribly unpopular thing to say. That's right. That's right. But, but you, get, you, you brought it up earlier, Glenn, that, that you know, there's a metaphysic at work, and uh, the metaphysic of modernity is a metaphysic that denies reality. Realism, you know, we're all realists here. Mm-hmm. You know, understood. Now, when, when people hear the term realism, they think about it almost in a modern way, but we're thinking yeah. about it in a medieval and ancient way. We believe that invisible things are real, that analogies are based on realities. They're not just arbitrary things that we assign to be meaningful because of some coincidental sort of... Uh, uh, Sort of resemblance. Uh, we believe that there's a there's actually a, a real resemblance. That there is a kind of uh, inextricable sort of connection between the analogy and the reality. You know, mm-hmm. we're not nominalists. That's, 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 right. Right. that's, that's right. right. That's right. Just so you know, we're yeah. not nominalists. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's another topic for another podcast. But anyways, let's wrap it up here. This has been a great show. I appreciate you know the contributions these guys have made. I know there are going to be a lot of people out there in my network of people who are just going to really enjoy this. There'll be probably some that don't. Yeah, we, we know we know there's going to be some uh, flames thrown our way. That's right. That's why we don't have an email address. You cannot write us. <laughs> anyway, uh, anything you guys want to say as we wrap up? This ties into so many other huge issues. Um, again, tying it back to last week, the idea of transcendence, um, yes. connection to imminence, the yes. connection between transcendence and imminence, all of these different kinds of things yeah. that we can bring this in so many different directions that we just simply don't have time to deal with. But it would be, it would be fun to do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and the reminder that there is a qualitative, not simply a quantitative distinction between human flourishing and our eternal yes. aims and ends. That's right. Yeah, Hebrews talks a little bit about that. That's right. <laughs> and we'll get more into that, I'm right, sure. Right, right. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast, uh, broadcasting to you from, or podcasting to you from, the Corner Pug here in West Hartford, Connecticut. Please uh, join us next time. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.